It's Friday, January 5th, 2024, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, coming up the domestic and global implications of Taiwan's presidential election. But first, Neil Shearing, Group Chief Economist, is with me again to discuss the big issues in macro and markets. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I hope it's not too late to be wishing that. Let's start with the state of play, because the last time we spoke on this podcast, it was just after that final Fed meeting of 2023, and markets were partying on the back of those very dovish signals from the FOMC and from Powell's press conference. Bit of a different mood at the start of 2024. Stocks down, yields up, risk off. Has anything really changed on the macro front to justify this pullback? Not really, no. I think really what's happened in markets over the past day or so really reflects a bit of an unwinding of the extreme moves that we saw over relatively quiet trading during the holiday period. So if you think about what's happened in markets, we've seen yields back up. Uh, so we've now got uh, 10-year treasuries at the time of that the we're talking back over 4%, for example, haven't been as low as kind of below 380 over the Christmas period. We've had a, the dollars up kind of 1.5% or so on the DXY index. There's a bit of a risk-off mood there. I think that's reflected too in equities. It perhaps reflects a bit of profit-taking. It perhaps reflects a sense that markets have got ahead of themselves over the festive period. But if you look at the macro, not much has changed really. And in fact, if we look at the data that we've had over the past week, it really supports that disinflation story that we were talking about at the back end of last year. So the jolts data, job openings data that we had from the US, that showed a big drop in job openings, another fall in the quits rate. The quits rate itself now looks like it's consistent with wage growth in the US, slowing to 3.5% year on year, which if you think productivity growth has rebounded a bit in the US, that now looks like it's pretty consistent with a 2% inflation target. Meanwhile, we're talking on Friday, we've just had the, the Eurozone inflation debt numbers, lots of focus on the headline rate going up, but the core numbers coming down. So actually, I don't think the macro environment's changed a great deal. It's more that markets got ahead of themselves over the Christmas period. Some of the, the, the air has come out of the market, perhaps. So too much festive celebrating in the markets. But there does seem to be some uncertainty about you know where we're heading in 2024. You mentioned that Eurozone inflation data. I wanted to ask about that German inflation release on Thursday in particular, because there were two news headlines that came out of that. You had the FT, which said German inflation rises to 3.8% in below to rate cut hopes. And then Bloomberg saying German inflation rises less than expected in boost for ECB. So starkly contrasting takes on the inflation read I guess the question is who's right, but more broadly, to what extent do these different interpretations reflect this market debate about getting inflation back to target in Europe and about how quickly the ECB is going to cut rates? Yes, you're right. So I think what really matters here is what's driving the moves in inflation. So in in the case of Europe, we had a pickup in the Eurozone inflation number from 2.4 in November to 2.9% in December, similar moves in Germany. That was all driven by base effects related to a large fall in energy inflation in December 2022. And we suspect that will unwind in January's data. Meanwhile, the core inflation number continued to fall. So if you look at the Eurozone as a whole, 
we, we don't get a core number for Germany, but if we look at the Eurozone as a, as a whole, the core rate declined from 3.6% year on year in November to a 21 month low of 3.4% in December. Uh, so in a narrow sense, the FT's headline, I think, is correct. It's a bit of a blow to, to the, for the ECB in the sense that inflation has gone up. But really, it's core inflation that policymakers care about. And that remains on a downward trajectory. So our sense, looking across all of this data, is not much has changed for the ECB. This broad underlying disinflation trend is continuing. It's core inflation that matters. There's not much in this data that really changes our view that the ECB will be cutting rates probably from around April or so this year. What about the the Fed? US CPI is the big data release for the coming week. What are we expecting and, and how do you think that will feed into our view on, on when the Fed will start cutting this year? Yeah, I mean, a similar story, I suspect, playing out in the US with unhelpful base effects pushing up the headline rate, we think, from 3.1% to to 3.2% in December in year-on-year terms. But again, it's the core inflation rate that matters. And our sense is actually there, but we'll see a decline in the the year-on-year rate from 4% in November to 3.8% in December. Core inflation on the month, we think 0.2% month-on-month increase. So lots of uncertainty around used vehicles. Again, they'll be the main swing factors in this data. But our sense is core inflation still on a downward trajectory in the US. Again, that's what really matters for policymakers. You know, markets should be braced for, I suspect, conflicting headlines and perhaps some views that pick up in infl- headline inflation is, is a blow to the view that, that the Fed will be cutting rates in kind of Q1, Q2. I suspect, again, those headlines slightly miss the point. Moving away from, from these, these near-term uh, inflation risks, another source of uncertainty in markets at the start of this year seems to be these attacks on shipping in the Red Sea feels like there's two issues here, doesn't it? I mean, you've got the direct impact on disruptions to to cargo, and then this lingering question of whether the Israel-Hamas war broadens out into the region. Talk through the implications of all this. What, what are investors meant to make of this? You're right. I think that's the right way to frame it. It's those, those are the two important questions. I think it's the second issue that is by far the most important from a macro sense. Now, as regards the disruption to shipping, there's been a lot of focus on what's happened to spot rates for shipping over the past month or so, given the disruption, actually not just in, in the Red Sea, but also in the, the Panama Canal. They get a lot of attention, but the key point is that most shipping costs are set on long-term contracts of typically 12 months or so. So they the, the actual costs of shipping tend to move much more slowly and evolve much more slowly than, than the spot rates. So at the same time, I think that the demand backdrop is very different in the global economy. And we've had some evidence of this over the past week. The global manufacturing PMIs for January, again, pointing to pretty weak price pressures, pretty subdued demand. This is not 2021 where we had the Suez Canal blockage, if you remember, with the ever given container ship, where the global goods demand was surging. And we had backups at ports and shortages of goods. This is very, very different demand backdrop. So I think if you take both of those two things together, the demand backdrop being very different and the fact that shipping costs themselves tend to be set on long-term contracts rather than reflect just the spot rate, I think the immediate implications for inflation are a lot less extreme than some of the the recent headlines have suggested. That gets me to the second point that that you made, which is really the big issue here is 
do the tensions in the Middle East spill over into something much broader in terms of a regional conflict? And this is not really about direct conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. It's about whether it spills over, pulls in other regional powers, notably Iran and and Saudi Arabia. Of course, they they themselves produce much more oil, but of course, it could lead to a response, for example, sanctions on Iran being enforced much more strictly and so on and so forth. And then you get a feedback loop into global inflation through energy prices. So I think that's the key challenge. It's through regional conflict, the impact on energy markets, and then the consequent in- impact on on global inflation. That That's the main risk here, I think, rather than the d- disruption that has flowed directly from the blockages in the Red Sea. I, I guess one point worth making in all of this is that the Israeli government has made it clear that this conflict is not going to end anytime soon. It's something that's going to persist well into to this year. And the longer it goes on, the greater, I suppose, the possibility that it does end up pulling in other regional powers. So this is something that I think is not going to go away quickly, but nor do I think at the moment is going to really shift the dial either on global inflation or on global activity. Neil Shearing there on conflict in the Middle East and the 2024 outlook. Our global team has a note out all about the inflation and policy impact of these attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. I'll put that on the podcast page. Neil and I were speaking just before the December US payrolls release. That came in a bit stronger than consensus, but Paul Ashworth, our chief US economist, says for the Fed, it's the coming week CPI and PPI data that's going to matter in terms of whether we get that first rate cut in March. Paul and the US team will be all over those December inflation releases on Thursday with rapid responses followed by more in-depth analysis, but they'll also be in one of our drop-ins. Those are our short-form online briefings soon after the release to answer your questions about the 2024 inflation and Fed policy outlook. That's 10 a.m. New York, 3 p.m. London on Thursday. Also this coming week, we've got drop-ins on Turkey's economic policy, whether the government's latest U-turn is is actually going to stick. Our property team are going to be briefing on our grim U.S. commercial real estate forecasts for 2024. And our EM team are going to be online to talk about why we see such large divergence in EM growth paths this coming 12 months. We're also putting together a session on Chinese commodities demand for this coming Friday. Details to follow. Uh, You can find the details of all of our live events and watch recordings of previous sessions on our events page. That's capitaleconomics.com forward slash events capitaleconomics.com forward slash events. And for direct access to all our drop-ins, check out CE Advance, our premium platform. Now, in the busiest year on record for elections worldwide, Taiwan's on the 13th of January is likely to be among the most consequential. The question around Taiwan's status is probably the key flashpoint in a deteriorating US-China relationship. Xi Jinping's New Year's speech was a reminder of the Communist Party's long-standing policy that Taiwan is a part of China and will be unified with it. It's a position at odds with Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, whose leader Tsai Ing-wen is stepping down after serving two four-year terms as president. As Taiwan prepares to choose her successor, Chief Asia Economist Mark Williams talked to me earlier in the week about what's at stake both for Taiwan but also for the global economy. Our chat begins with Mark on the three candidates for the presidency and what the closing polls say about who's likely to come out on top on election day. There are three candidates for president. There's Lai Ching who is the current vice president from the DPP. 
There is Ho Yoi, who is from the KMT. And there is, this time, there's a third-party candidate, someone called Ko Wen who's a former Taipei mayor and came to prominence in Taiwan's politics as a sort of alternative to the big two parties. Now, all of the polls over the past few weeks have been fairly consistent in giving Lai Qingde, the current vice president, a lead over one of the other two. So he seems to be in first place, or was in first place, the last polls that we saw. But that lead has been quite variable. It's ebbed and flowed, and different polls have given it as bigger or smaller. Some of the most recent ones that we've seen are only three or four points, that lead. Uh, and then as to who's in second and who's in third, well, the polls differ. Most of them suggest it's Hoyoi from the KMT is in second place, but some put Cohen's in, in, in second place as well. Now, a complication here is that in Taiwan, no one is allowed to publish polls in the final 10 days of campaigning. So there's a bit of a dead period here where we don't really know what, what is happening. And there's every possibility, obviously, that numbers will have changed. Which is to say, therefore, that Leitinger, I think everybody was safe. The current vice president is the favourite, but we you know, certainly couldn't rule out either of the other two coming through as winners. And of those three, who does Beijing want to win? Well, Beijing um, certainly doesn't like the current vice president. They've made that fairly clear. Um, they see him as the as the one who is most pro-independence. I guess that's that's true, although the DPP's position on this has been since the late 1990s that Taiwan is already an independent country, so there's no need to declare independence. They just want to stick with the status quo of independence as they see it. The the Communist Party in Beijing would most like, I think, ironically, the KMT candidate, ironically, because, of course, it was the KMT that they were fighting a, a civil war with uh, a few decades ago. But the KMT is the party in Taiwan that that most wants to reach out and find a way to live with Beijing and perhaps hold open the possibility of unification in the future. And the third party candidate, Kerwinger, is kind of untested internationally and has tried to avoid, I think, giving too strong views on exactly where he stands. As I say, he came to prominence as a sort of an alternative to the big two on this. So put some flesh on those bones, would you? I mean, you, you talk about lighting the as the favourite, what would another DPP victory and, and a lighting the presidency specifically mean for cross-strait relations? And you know, does a KMT or even a TPP victory mean a, a very different outcome? So I think that, that, that um, there would be a difference, at least in the near term. So you can think of a lighting to a DPP victory as more of the same, if you like. After all, he's been vice president for the past few years, past four years, and the DPP has been in power for the past eight years. So although, I mean, there's every possibility, I suppose, that, that Beijing might want to punish Taiwan's voters for voting for the wrong person if they put Lai Xingde in the presidential palace. But you know, they've been putting sanctions on parts of Taiwan's economy for, for the whole eight years that Taiwan has been there. So I don't think we should really expect there to be a major change there. So that's one reason to think of a DPP victory is essentially kind of more of the same status quo. With the KMT candidate, with the whole UAE, if he were to win, there's a chance that some of those some of those sanctions would be rolled back. Now, to give a sense of you know their scale, most of them are really small. They are on agricultural products, on gravel, you know, really small things that don't really matter much to Taiwan's economy. The one area that's not so small is tourism, and tourist numbers from China really collapsed a few years ago before the pandemic. If tourists were allowed to return, we've estimated that could give a boost of about 1% to Taiwan's GDP. 
which is not huge, but it's not nothing. So there's that kind of potential for a near-term boost in, in Taiwan's economy, I think, if the KMT were to win and if those were rolled back. But I think that what a lot of people are really interested in is not, you know, what is the outlook for Taiwan's hotel sector and so on. It's people are much more focused on further ahead, what happens to the cross-strait relationship, and in particular, what does this mean for Taiwan's tech sector? Because, of course, we're all so conscious these days of our dependence, wherever we are in the world, on semiconductors from Taiwan. They're, they're ubiquitous in not just the traditional tech products we, we we buy, but also in cars, you know, and in anything which has got chips in it, which these days is a lot of what we, we buy. And I think it's a bit harder there to suggest that fundamentally a KMT victory or indeed a TPP victory, you know, anything other than the status quo, really changes things um, beyond perhaps a, a warming of um, relations in the near term. Because if you look at the um, opinion surveys in Taiwan, they are really clear when it comes to Taiwan's um, identity that even those people who are intending to vote for the KMT, for the party that is warmest towards China, even those, more than half of KMT voters say that Taiwan and China are separate countries. So even if the KMT were to win the presidency, it did very well in these elections, it really is very hard to see a path that Taiwan's people would voluntarily take that would lead to what Xi Jinping wants, which is unification with China. So that fundamental rift isn't going away, whatever happens at this election. And the question of whether Xi Jinping at some point will decide to force unification will will remain as well. So it will remain a, a geopolitical flashpoint, regardless of who wins. I mean, there's a tendency to view this election in, in purely geopolitical terms, but it was striking, wasn't it, the, the recent presidential debate a lot of it was devoted to issues like social housing. Talk about Taiwan's economic outlook, whether a DPP or KMT victory would make any difference to that outlook. Talk about the kind of issues that voters care about going into the election. Well, I think that the biggest mistake that outsiders make when thinking about politics in Taiwan, at least in my view, is to imagine that it is all about relations with, with China. They do loom really large. I don't want to sort of suggest that's not a big part of this election, but it's certainly not the only thing that is on people's minds during the campaign has been a lot of talk about, for example, nuclear power. The incumbent party, the DPP, is promising to phase out the use of um, nuclear power. Others want to keep it. Um, housing costs are an issue. Uh, house prices are very high. Childcare costs, as elsewhere, people have been squeezed recently by by inflation. So a lot of the regular, you know, politics, domestic politics that plays out in other countries, of course, makes a big difference in. In, in Taiwan as well. And the DPP has been in power for eight years. So to a large degree, they're running on their record as much as as, as anything else and their, their domestic uh, record. No party in Taiwan has ever won three successive elections. And I think that that time for a change dynamic is a powerful one. China is one of many issues that Taiwanese voters care about, but I guess we can't really get away from it. I wanted to, you mentioned Xi Jinping, I wanted to ask specifically about these forecasts for exactly when China is going to invade Taiwan. It's a question we get all the time. What do you make of, of all of this noise? You can't dismiss the risk of an aggressive attempt to resolve this situation. On the, on the other hand, being confidently told that you know we need to brace for an invasion next year or in 2027, or in fact, any year leading up to 2049, it doesn't seem to be very helpful either. So so how should investors frame this risk? 
Well, the, the way that we talk about this with, with our clients typically is in terms of thinking through scenarios. As you say, there's not a lot of value in trying to predict whether this will happen or if it will exactly when it, it will happen. But there is value in trying to think through the different scenarios of what might happen and exactly how that would play out through global financial markets and through the global economy. There's always a lot of focus on this idea of an invasion. You know, that's the, the big seaborne invasion threat. Uh, but there are other scenarios worth considering as well. Remember when Nancy Pelosi visited um, China, conducted some drills off Taiwan's coast that were essentially a dry run for a blockade, exercise blockading um, Taiwan's ports. There are other scenarios of uh, maybe China trying to take one of the many outlying islands, some of them within, you know, you can see them from the mainland, or, or perhaps China um, asserting its right to be the power that, that manages Ch Taiwan's customs. So goods going in and out of Taiwan would have to submit customs declarations to China. There's a lots of different scenarios that are worth thinking through. And for investors and for our clients, I think it's important to kind of try to tease out both what the immediate implications of those would be, but also where do they lead? What, what happens um, next? And one of the implications or one of the key things to bear in mind, of course, is, is Taiwan's position in global supply chains, particularly in semiconductors, uh, is very hard to replace. So there's been some moves over the past few years by various governments to try to become less dependent on Taiwanese semiconductor production and to boost domestic semiconductor production. But we're learning how difficult that is. So in Arizona, for example, TSMC, the, the Taiwanese chip giant, has been building a plant but its projected opening date has just been pushed back because it's taking a lot longer to finish that plant than, than TSMC had expected. It's proving really, really difficult to replicate outside Taiwan what they're able to do at the cutting edge uh, inside Taiwan uh, because they don't have the suppliers nearby and they don't have the skilled workforce um, nearby uh, as well. So I think the one common theme that runs through these various scenarios is that Taiwan will be this crucial node in global supply chains for whatever happens for the foreseeable future. And there's no getting away from that. That was Mark Williams on Taiwan in the global economy. He'll be joining a drop-in on Monday the 15th, so straight after election weekend, to give his take on the outcome. Again, register via our events page. That's it for this week. We'll be back again on Monday 15th, talking about US energy exports and much, much besides. But until then, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.